Welcome back to Expert Instruction, the Teach by Design podcast, where we dive deeper into the research surrounding student behavior by talking with the people implementing these practices, where they work, and with the students they support. I'm Megan Cave. I'm Danielle Triplett. In today's episode, we're talking about how to make sure your PBIS implementation is culturally relevant to everyone in your building. The way we make this framework fit within a school's culture and context is fundamental to the work we do to ensure PBIS works for all of us, not just some of us. Yeah, and before we get into it, I just have to say that we've been doing this podcast now for, I think, going on four years now. And there are some episodes where I feel like we're talking with a friend, like uh-huh. just chit-chatting over coffee. And then there are other times where I'm sitting here and I'm taking notes from like a very smart person and I just have to like listen and like remember everything yes, that they said yes. I do absorb and, it yeah just like get it all uh-huh. on paper so that I can remember it all and like say it again uh and then there are conversations where it's both and I don't know I felt like this was a both conversation 100% agree yeah. yes today we're joined by Dr. Amber Green she's an associate professor of special education at the University of Texas at Arlington and a member of the equity work group for the center on PBIS Amber is a national scholar whose research focuses on inequitable school practices, behavior disorders, PBIS, and the use of evidence-based practices. When Megan and I were talking about our topic for this month, Amber's name was the first on the list of people to invite. I was so excited that she said yes. Yes, me too. Me too. A little behind the scenes break here for everybody. Danielle and I, we actually get together and we talk about the topic and we come up with a list of questions that we want to make sure to ask our guests like a couple days ahead of time. Like once we're in the conversation, we wing it and we like ask some other questions and we get into things a little bit more deeply, but we kind of have a set that guide us through the topic and the conversation. And spoiler alert, you can kind of anticipate what the answers are going to be and take things from there. In this episode, Amber gave us so many new ideas or at least like new, I don't know, new perspectives on topics that we both felt like we could have conversations about that really made it, I don't know, it was just a really, it was refreshing. I think the conversation was super refreshing. Like, for example, she we talked to her about some terminology that we use. Typically, we talk about culturally relevant, culturally responsive. We asked her to, to kind of share a little bit about the differences uh, between those. And she actually came up, came to us with a new word, a new concept that Danielle and I had not really considered before, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She, she talked about culturally sustaining practices, this idea that we could move beyond relevant and responsive, and we could actually create schools where cultures are sustained, where they're actually fostered inside of our walls that force our implementation to be multicultural instead of just hitting that one note all the time. It was great. That whole part was so good. I appreciated the conversation with her so much. I could have talked another hour, I think. Like we were with Amber. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. She's such a systems thinker like me. And she posed some questions for educators to consider, like how to think beyond students, how students access certain programs and really start thinking about what systems prevent students from accessing those programs. Mm -hmm. We also talked to her about how schools can engage the larger school-wide community where we think of students, their families, and even community members. And that's when she started telling us about her project to embed social workers on school-wide leadership teams, which blew our minds a little. (laughs) Social workers are are such a connective force within the school. So yes, their voice should be on those leadership teams and really helping. 
It seems so obvious. I know. I know. You're going to love this one. So let's get this going. Here's our conversation with Ambra. Well, hi, Ambra. Thanks so much for being with us today. It's so good to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you all, too. (laughs) Yes. Um, So today uh, we are taking on the topic. We're expanding on the topic that we've explored over on our Teach by Design article, where we're talking about student, family, staff, faculty engagement in our PBIS implementation. And uh, really what that does for us is it makes the implement, whatever it is that we implement, much more inclusive and relevant to the people that live and breathe in our buildings every day, right? And so you have so much good information to share with us, I think, about this topic and how we can make our implementation really feel relevant um, and inclusive to the people that are in our building. So maybe before we get started, um, something that Danielle and I um, encountered as we were talking about this, there are a lot of terms, there are a lot of different ways that we can talk about this topic. We found what was it, Danielle? Culturally responsive, culturally relevant, anti-racist. There's probably a, there's probably a lot of other ways that people talk about this. So maybe you can share a little bit about like the terminology and yeah. a little bit of like what's similar, what's a little different, and what what are we doing here? Yeah, sure. So yeah. that is that is not um an unusual question. And like you're you're right. Um, even when I go and provide like consulting or if I'm given a presentation, I always try to make sure that I um, bring everybody together around terminology so that we're on the same page. And so I think that's great that you all are starting out this way. Um, So those terms, they represent the same perspective and mindset, like in theory, but there are nuances as the field has grown more into understanding just, just pedagogy. And incorporating inclusivity and diversity and culture. So when culturally relevant pedagogy was first termed in like 1995 by Gloria Latson Billings, she was mainly concerned that all students experience three concepts during instruction. Like the, her three were, like one was focusing on the students learning and academic success, that they should be successful during instruction periods. Um, The second was that students are to develop their cultural competence so that they can assist other students or themselves um, in in developing a positive ethnic and their own social identities. And then the third that she was concerned with was supporting students' critical consciousness or their ability to recognize and critique the societal inequalities. So that's where where it, it first started with culturally relevant pedagogy. We've moved or the field has moved to maybe using the terms as culturally responsive pedagogy or culturally responsive teaching. And really, when we think about that term, um, that was coined by Geneva Gay. And in culturally responsive teaching, she gives us like tenants. She calls them tenants of teacher instruction that um, mainly detail how teachers should use uh, instruction and incorporate students' prior experiences and their performance styles when we're trying to assess students. How do they prefer to be assessed based on their their culture, um, what they're good at? And almost around that same time, then we have um, Django Paris, who 
who really kind of grappled with, thankfully, you know, it advances the field with the two terms of relevant pedagogy or responsive pedagogy. And he offers the term culturally sustaining pedagogy ah, okay. instead. Yeah. And so with this term, Paris is specific about the need for systems of education to foster or sustain, hence sustaining pedagogy, mm-hmm. the linguistic or uh, liter- the literate and cultural pluralism as part of education or schooling that um, that's given or, or given that um, the current education system and their policies and practices in our, in our schools were designed to maintain monoculturalism and monolingual in a monolingual society. So, like I said, though these terms are all along the same perspective and mindset, and making sure that we um, we include culture or students' culture in. Um, schooling, but there are nuances. I had wow. never heard of um, culturally cultural culturally sustaining. Mm-hmm. Culturally I hadn't. Sustaining. That was yeah. a term I hadn't heard before, and I like that one. This idea mm-hmm. of like fostering um, all of the different cultures and giving them space to sustain in school right. instead of saying yeah. like outside of school that can happen and in yes. here this is our culture mm-hmm. here. I like that. Con- just conceptually, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Amber. That was really, I, I'm like taking lots of notes and learning from you already. <laughs> <laughs> and let's, well, let's move into, you know, how, uh, inclusivity. And you mentioned that. So when, when you walk into a school or a building, how do you know that their implementation might be inclusive? I mean, some, you know, these terms like equity, we often just see that and it's kind of added to things. And we don't want to just slap this sticker on and say, we're mm-hmm. being equitable. Like, how do we really know that that's in place in our schools and buildings? Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. Um, yeah. Sometimes you aren't able to just walk in and tell by, by what the school looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten, schools have gotten so, <laughs> what's the word good now, maybe in, in slapping books on, you know, yeah, like right. yeah. pictures or posters yeah, on poster. the wall and have books and various book titles and various uh, racial and ethnic uh, diversity in the books and, and all of those things. Um, we have these cultural celebrations and I love all of those things, but that is not an indicator of whether there's true inclusivity <laughs> happening in the, on the campus. The poster's not going to cut it on its own. No, not going to no. cut it. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got Take it. it right. Check. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no posters. No. Um, more than just posters. More. Really. Yeah. So, um, yeah, because those those things can be a facade or just slapping on that equity sticker, like mm-hmm. like you mentioned. So. I like to know when I walk into the building what the teacher is teaching and how they're teaching. And by what I'm talking about the curricula, like I want to know what is the curricula saying about some topics that are controversial in our education system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to know what the curricula what the curricula is, uh, is and how teachers are teaching. So are they using these evidence-based practices? Are they using culturally sustaining practices or culturally responsive practices? Um, I also want to know what academic content areas are being offered in the school. Mm-hmm. And going beyond that, um, are are the, the offerings in the school advanced or 
uh, advanced coursework or the college and career prep work um, that's being offered? And then what are the systems for encouraging or preventing students from engaging in those courses. So mm-hmm. a lot of times we see schools or districts saying, oh, our school offers, you know, advanced calculus, I don't know, or calculus one or two yeah. at, the, at the middle school level. Um, but, and that's great, but sometimes there's gatekeeping happening in those higher level course courses. Um, so sometimes, and this is actually a, a true story that um, happened to, um, one of my nephews, um, but he, my nephew did not pass the state assessment. And um, that was the, the end, one of the indicators for, or maybe the indicator for getting into an advanced, you know, algebra sure. or advanced geometry class. Mm-hmm. And um, my sister fought for him to get into that advanced class, regardless of the fact that he didn't pass the state assessment. And thankfully so, because he was able to, you know, go into that advanced algebra class, start taking advanced courses, start, you know, then he moved into high school and is earning college credit in mm-hmm. his math courses. But that is, you know, a system that while the courses were there and, and seemingly available to all students, there was some gatekeeping gatekeeping hmm. happening that yeah. could have presented prevented him from those higher, you know, uh, those, those other experiences. So not only are we having these courses, but what are the systems for encouraging or what systems may be preventing our students from engaging in those courses? Mm-hmm. Um, when you mentioned, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to add just literacy courses as well. Um, what are or not li- like language courses, what language courses yeah. are offered or, you know, are we just doing, you know, Spanish courses, because I'm just thinking here in Texas, yeah. that's a common one, Spanish um, or German courses. But what about other other language courses, right, that mm-hmm. uh, they reflect our students' population and their, yeah. their language? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you mentioned um, looking at what evidence-based practices and culturally relevant or sustaining practices is the school implementing. What are some examples of those? Yeah, that so, you might be looking for. Yes. So I'm looking at student or I'm sorry, teachers using positive specific feedback, um, high rates of praise statements. Students are academically engaged because there are a lot of opportunities to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also looking for how the teacher is allowing the students to uh, show mastery of the content area. So is it through some type of performance art or is it through paper and pencil tests? Mm-hmm. Um, is, are students allowed to um, bring in, you know, things from home that mm-hmm. represent their culture, that represents something that they're learned, you know, that they're making a connection in that content area. Um, so I'm looking for non-traditional teaching, <laughs> non-traditional teaching and teaching with our, um, you know, evidence-based practices and our students' cultures in mind. Mm-hmm. Love those examples. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. I think it just, um, if I'm thinking about being a student and uh, going into a place to learn, not only would it be, um, I don't know, I just think it makes it more interesting too. You know, if there are if there are options for what for how I can engage right. um, with 
my academics, if there are ways that I can express myself that feel creative or, um, I don't know, just more authentic to who I am as a learner, I might be more inclined to engage with the content that way. Um, and so what you're talking about to me is just offering up options and, um, and that maybe we, we have to, we take tests with our paper and our pencil, but maybe there are other opportunities to do project-based learning or getting into groups and doing oral presentations or whatever it is, you know, whatever, and that everybody has exposure to that. And, um, that maybe one person or a group of kids like to do it this way. Mm -hmm. But just because I don't like to do it that way doesn't mean that I shouldn't have the opportunity to try, you know, right. and it just right. makes a fuller experience, I think, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, students need to be able to. A lot of times we use the word students need to see themselves in the curricula. And I do. I agree with that. But sure. I also want to see them engage in the curricula. Um, like how are they how are they making connections between the curricula and their their life outside life. of school, their right. home, their family? What right. you know, how do they see, you know, I don't know, their their parent or their guardian reflected in what they're reading or their, you know, their culture and what they're reading? And and can those people be brought in to the mm-hmm. classroom? to further expand, um, you know, or enrich the, the lesson. So, yeah, I, I just like to see, I want to see students engage in the curriculum and bring what they have to that lesson. Yeah. And to, I think to, in addition to that, um, I was, ta- Danielle and I were talking a little bit about our own experiences as students when we were younger, you know, and I grew up in a place that uh, I uh, I went to a school that looked a whole lot like I look and uh, teachers looked like my parents and the way that uh, the rules and expectations were set up in school felt very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Right. But we also had opportunities to, to, to learn about and think about things that are outside of that, that norm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think too, that when we expand how we um, how we engage students, not only are you inviting in um, people that have a lived experience that's different or um, nuanced compared to you know the majority maybe in your school, but you're also you're also um, exposing kids to difference in the world and, um, and that not everybody's experience is going to be the same as yours. Mm -hmm. And it's important to learn how to do that. Um, if you're going to not only engage in the, in the content that you're learning at school, but if you're going to continue to be a lifelong learner and just a person in the world, you know, being able to, to figure out how to do this, um, from a younger age mm-hmm. and to experience that through your schooling, I think sets everybody up to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of this, part of this requires that we engage with our larger school-wide community and we ask them what's working for them and what isn't working for them. And, um, and I've been doing a little bit of reading about feedback and what it is to like, give and receive feedback Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that it has to be 
a conversation. It cannot be like, this is what we're doing. And I read, um, I was reading some of the findings that you did with some of our colleagues here related to um, looking at discipline uh, policies that are in some of these larger districts across the country. And um, I specifically took a closer look at that part around family engagement, right? How do we Um, engage our families and our students in the way that our schools work? And I can't remember the exact number, but it was very few of these policies actually included real engagement, right? Like there was this like one directional or reactionary type of response, but there was very few of these um, policies that actually went out and sought out that feedback from the people that are coming and going from the school all the time. Mm -hmm. And what we know about that practice, right, is that it makes our schools much more inclusive, right, and responsive and relevant um, to everybody there if you include their perspectives and feedback and how you operate, right? Mm -hmm. So if if we know that this is not a common thing, right, this true bi-directional conversational feedback where I also have to listen as an administrator to a family member who's telling me a thing about their experience. What are the ways that we can do that, that are um, effective and actually equitable, like really equitable? Mm -hmm. Um, What have you seen schools do and how is it that we can actually lift up all of the voices in our school-wide community so that we can make sure that everyone is heard and uh, and we don't miss something that we should be doing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It is it is uh, an extremely well from our sample size. It was an extremely uh, small amount of schools who were actively and um, proactively yes. engaging That's community members mm-hmm. and external um, partners, and so. Um, I, I think a lot of that is because I don't, I, I'm, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I can potentially be uh, convinced uh, otherwise. I'm not sure though, but I think I'm on to something, but I'm not convinced that we have all of the um, knowledge and experience when it comes to engaging external uh, community members or external partners um, at the table. Like we have, when we're thinking about these school-wide systems, we have our administrators and they are typically trained in one way or, or, you know, their their training and education is in a specific specific thing, how to be an administrator. Um, We have our teachers, they're trained in pedagogy. We have our SPED teachers. We have other groups at the table. We have school psychologists. Um, But who I, the group that I, um, who have the expertise in engaging external communities and partners are the least at the table. And I believe those would be our social workers. Mm. Um, Our social workers are hardly at the table. Um, They're, they're hardly in our schools or school social workers are hardly in our schools, but they're, if they're in our schools, they're hardly on our leadership team, um, you know, board or table, um, our systems table. And if we really want to engage our community partners um, or have community relations, then we need people who were trained 
mm-hmm. right? Educated, went to school for that. We can do as much, you know, I, I don't have the training and I can do as much as I can on, on trying to establish community relationships, but they know, right? They know who to go to for different things and, and that. So um, I would say, I definitely would say our school social workers would be, um, should definitely begin to, or should be at our tables. We would greatly benefit for have, um, from having them and appropriately appropriately utilizing them to assist with engaging our community agencies and fostering community school relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to add that um, the U.S. Department of Education Office for Special Education Programs, they have, um, they put out proposals or response for proposals every year or so um, to just increase the personnel for students with high, students with disabilities and students with high intensity behaviors. Hmm. One of those groups that they particularly target or th- that a grant or a proposal sh- could particularly target is other related service personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so co- some colleagues and I wrote a grant to prepare social workers, cross-trained social workers and special education teachers in um, understanding social, our SPED people would be understanding social work and yes. our social workers would be understanding special education yes. and how they can work together mm-hmm. um, to better, to, to, to have better outcomes for our students. And so with that, it's Project Match Made in Schools. Nice. And that, I know, isn't that cute? I love that <laughs> Thanks. Um, But with that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like Mm -hmm. figuring out how we can cross train individuals or provide or or, or encourage um, like our other individuals, related service personnel, like social work, school social workers who have that knowledge and experience to to help us in that way. Yeah. And also, you know, like our administrators and everyone else, like I said, they have their tasks, they're busy. We need a, we need a full-time member or Mm -hmm. members, right. On our staff to do just that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amber, you make such a good point. And I'm thinking of, I was a middle school teacher until about 2009 and I can't remember school social workers being part of the building at that time. And Mm -hmm. I've seen that change over the past, you know, 15 years or so where we are having social workers, but I know mm-hmm. they're also, at least here in the Portland area, hard, hard positions to fill. There are vacancies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love this, the work you're doing, elevating that role and really making sure they are part of our leadership teams because. Yeah. Thank you. It's like part of how they're trained and, and what's yes. really in their hearts and, and the work they want to yeah. do. So. So let's move on, Amber, and we want to talk about school-wide systems and practices and incorporating students' lived experiences. And we know that sometimes, kind of like Megan was sharing earlier with her schooling, it, there was a match between what, what yeah. expectations were at home and what was reflected at school. Like those kind of seem to align pretty well. That's not the case for a lot of our kiddos out there. So what do we do about that when there is a, you know, a mismatch between the systems and practices that the school has established and, and kids lived experiences? And I'm also very curious to know, like, how do you know when that's the case? Because I might not know that, right. <laughs> that something I've got set up in my building isn't working for everyone. Mm -hmm. How do I know that a thing that I thought was working was going to be a good thing for everybody actually isn't such a positive thing for some? And, Mm -hmm. and then what do I do about it? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I guess I would, I'm thinking of two things. Um, one, I, I would say uh, you would know or the school would likely know um, because they'll be experiencing conflict. Um, and so a lot of, you know, conflict isn't, in this case, I'm I'm wanting to highlight that conflict isn't isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's communicative, uh, yeah. likely, you know. So um, conflict can happen between students and teachers. You can see com, com, uh, conflict possibly happening between families, um, that family or couple of families who are always calling in or coming up to the office or saying something is, you know, not working for their child. Potentially there's conflict with, you know, the community. And so these conflicts may lead to the use of, we will see exclusionary discipline practices possibly in, in our schools. Um, and so you know that there's a mismatch between the school systems and possibly a particular group of students if you were to look at your disaggregated discipline data and you would see disproportionality or specifically the overrepresentation of certain groups of students who are receiving exclusionary practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then another way is that schools may see that the reinforcers or the reinforcement system that they're using is only appreciated by some students. Like some students aren't taking advantage of the dance days or the free de- free dress Fridays or um, the popcorn day or what, whatever it is. So it's not working for you know, some of some of the students, you have to see where the the conflict is, what is not happening Um, instead of trying to figure it out or see it as an aversive, you know, that conflict is an aversive and we just want to like get rid of it and extinguish it quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But if the schools and districts would pay attention that, like I said, the conflict is communicating something, it's like an indicator light in your car, right? And sometimes that indicator, like a light is like the check engine light, that there is a problem and it tells you exactly where to look. It tells you check engine, like it literally, (laughs) right? There's your problem. Check the engine and figure out what it is. But, but other times, um, the indicator light is just, you know, a, a, a light and you don't know what this thing is. And so you have to then research, you gotta, you gotta go to your car manual and you gotta read what that indicator says. And you gotta, or you gotta take it to the auto shop for someone else to tell you what it is and how to address the issue. But either way, us, you know, car drivers, we don't just erase that indicator light and keep going. We are concerned that there's conflict happening with the car that I'm, driving yeah we acknowledge the issue and we we seek to fix the issue for the health of the car and I think this should be the case for how we operate in in our schools um, that we fix the issue with the right solution for the health of the child for each child Mm -hmm. Um, so so that's that is what I would say about you know the mismatch identifying the mismatch and what you can do about it. You have to yeah. you have to disaggregate that data and you have to figure out what the conflict is communicating. I'm thinking too about um the things that maybe it's like looking for the thing that's missing too. Like uh if I were to ask like if let's say I don't do a whole lot at my kids school. I have friends that are very involved and volunteering for all the things and they're highly involved. And I'm so grateful 
for them to do those things. The bandwidth that I have for that is very small. So if my school was going to see if like, does Megan come to our, when was the last time she came to like a family night? They would see that I don't, I haven't been, <laughs> you know, I haven't been, we got a busy schedule. I haven't been. Uh-huh. Uh, when was the last time she volunteered in the library? Never, never did she ever one time. Like, not that she's not excited about our school, but she's never volunteered. And so it's sort of like looking for like, we have a group of people that are highly invested and involved. If we're looking at family involvement, yeah. Danielle and I have talked a lot about this, right? That like we have a group of people in our schools often that are highly involved, but then there's also a group of people that are less involved in what we've got going on. And it would be, I'm wondering, would it, how do you engage that group of people to know whether or not their lack of response is because we're missing something for them mm-hmm. or if their lack of response is just because it's like me, I'm busy and I love what you're doing. I just can't be there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like asking those questions too, potentially. Yeah. I, I I think that would be the solution is to ask those questions. Um, and then that goes back to who's going to ask the question. And yeah. if we have a designated person that who's, you know, on our mm-hmm. team, whose mm-hmm. job it was for family engagement and external partnerships, then we can, we can do that with ease. And that's just the more data that we're, we're collecting um, to be most effective for, you know, for each child. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every school needs this person though. The more I'm hearing you talk about this, Amber, I'm yes. like, yes, we need them. Yes, I, that, right? I'm telling you, I, I don't know if anyone can convince me that we do not need this person because that that is a missing chunk mm-hmm. and everyone's role is is at capacity like they're doing their role really well. Um, and it's just that we need this other role. We need this other individual to do what's missing in our schools. I don't know if it's always been this way or not, but every time we talk to somebody in these episodes, it always seems to come back to this. This thing that resonates for me is that schools are community centers, right? Like they they have become a place where we offer resources and um, and safety sometimes and food yeah. and but they're also supposed to be there for academic learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more that, that is affirmed for me in these conversations anyway, where like we're doing more than just teaching Mm -hmm. anymore, that Mm -hmm. we're expecting teachers to be all of these things. You're, it's very clear to me that, um, that getting this person, whoever this person (laughs) is, is going to be more and more critical in order to serve, better serve, more efficiently serve the people in our building, I think. Right. Yeah. And they, and like you, you mentioned earlier, like they know the people in the community, so they can bring in community partners to sit, to, to be, you know, like ex officio members of the leadership team and just so that the community is also brought into just, it doesn't just have to be like a place for um, where resources are provided, but it's, it's, true relationship partnership with just the community just in general um yeah. without the need for providing providing resources yeah it's integrated it's right yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the other thing that danielle and i have talked about related to this is um we started talking about it in terms of 
uh, hiring a contractor and like getting things going for your remodel at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, let's assume that everybody wants to have a building that is inclusive and culturally sustaining for their staff, their students and their families. Let's just mm-hmm. make that assumption. So who are, what are the the pieces that you need to have in place before you get started with the work? So like the way that Danielle and I were talking about it is like, if you're going to do a kitchen remodel, you get yourself a contractor, a couple of bids, you have a plan, you get it some blueprints, maybe whatever, a timeline, something, yeah. put all those things in place before you then go, okay, step one is like tear out the cupboards. So what are those little foundational elements that you would say maybe like a one to three things that you would say school's got to have this if they're going to do this work mm-hmm. well I, I first will start with research that research shows that administration like administrator buy-in is going to be the most critical um, component to any system change mm-hmm. or implementation. So first would be administrator buy-in. The second, um, in my opinion, um, actually the the next two, in my opinion, would be accountability and then paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. Um, So first accountability for like how we are going to make sure we are implementing what we're going to implement well and with fidelity and how we're going to make sure we're all doing it. Like we're going to agree to these, to, to, to this implementation. And then the paradigm shift is really where the knowledge comes in for, you know, across the teachers and community members or collaborators or anything where they, they um, have a deeper understanding of whatever this, you know, of implementation um, and why the system change is needed and why we're selecting the system that we are selecting to best serve each child. Um, so that then when we talk about accountability, we're all on the same page. And so I just think that those right now, if I'm just like just thinking yeah. about it, would be the top three things that you need. So let's think about, you know, I, and what Megan said earlier about like, we're making that assumption. We're kind of making that assumption for our listeners who are like tuning in. To <laughs> like, yes, Amber, I want to do that this. That's yeah. not the case, maybe everywhere. No. But for listeners out there, they're listening. They've made it through almost an hour of our podcast with you. And they're like, how do I, we're, we're ready. Where is a starting place, right? Can you suggest some resources folks might check out, networks you would recommend? those kinds of things. We'd love to hear your. Yeah. So I, I would first recommend um, the center on positive behavior interventions and support. So that's Mm PBIS.org. Definitely go there and figure out, you know, where to start, how to start in their state, Um, find their state contact or state coordinator and um, start working there. They can also look, I mean, through the website and, and, and get lots of information on, on how to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and the research behind it, right? Like going back to the buy-in and needing and, you know, needing to to change perspectives and um, and understanding why like PBIS works and there's resources for and research in there as well. Uh, another center that I can think of is the National Center on Intensive Intervention. Mm-hmm. And that website is, um, I think it's inter- 
intensiveintervention.org. Um, they also, I believe, reference um, like a multi-tiered system of support as well. And so those would be the two off of the top of my head that I can think of. Mm -hmm. I'd build on that too with um, a coach would probably be super helpful to a PBIS team that was yeah. trying to do this work as brand as sort of a brand mm -hmm. new approach um, or at least a concerted effort and a priority in their implementation. Um Something that we've talked a lot about um, in these conversations anyway is how valuable it is to be able to have someone on your team that's done this work in the past. Mm -hmm. And um, if you've got people on it that aren't familiar or don't really know where what to do or where to start, finding someone who can help you start and offer guidance on what they've seen work and on those evidence-based practices and the research and all of that is really important. So um, yeah, contacting the center and finding someone in your area who can help you help guide you through this first part of this process would be super useful, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good one. Danielle knows the value I've also seen a lot of where we're, you know, coaches or others can bring schools together or bring teams together. Mm -hmm. so like, Oh, I'm just tackling this at my school and I'm on, I'm on, you know, isolated. Like let's bring mm -hmm. people together and, and learn from one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Amber, this has been super great. Thank you so much for joining us and talking yes. to us about your work and how we can navigate this in the schools that we talk to and support and how they might be able to make their implementation more inclusive. This has been Super great. Super great. <laughs> well, I thank you. I would immensely, Amber. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time and opportunity, the opportunity to speak with everyone.